You are listening to the Marilyn Manson Cases Podcast, the podcast discussing the accusations, lawsuits, and legal news surrounding shock rocker Marilyn Manson. Please note topics include allegations of abuse some may find disturbing. Today I'm joined by two attorneys who are also YouTubers that cover the Marilyn Manson lawsuits, Andrea Burkhart and Steve of Southern Law. To start, would you guys like to introduce yourself and your channel and where we can find you starting with Andrea? Yeah, so my name is Andrea Burkhart. I'm a practicing criminal defense attorney in uh, the state of Washington. You can find me on Twitter and YouTube at A Burkhart Law. And I'm Steve and my channel is uh, Southern Law and that's because I'm in North Carolina. <laughs> What's left of the South. Love it. So how are you guys doing with this recent big news that Ashley Morgan Smith Lyons case has been dismissed? Well, I'm not surprised. Obviously, the court had set it up for that and it looked like that's all she was going to let it, it happen was just let the clock run out and not, not bother with anything. I was a little surprised, I guess, that she didn't even bother to answer um, communications from Howard King at the address that was left for her with the court. But but not very surprised. I don't know if Andrea has a different take on that. No, I, I agree. I'm not only not surprised that uh, the dismissal was granted, I'm not, I'm also not surprised that she has just kind of ghosted the whole situation from what we did see of her communications with Howard, uh, Howard King and, and her own attorney. Uh, it did look pretty clearly like she was trying as much as she could to, to just get out of the entire situation. Uh, so under her circumstances, if that's what she wants, uh, vanishing is really the best course of action for her. Yeah, because it looks like when you consider some of these DMs, she's talking to people, a lot of people, even Eric Hunley, he was talking about that, I think recently on Popcorn Planet. And then when we did his a birthday celebration for Marilyn Manson. It's just a lot of strange stuff going on, at least when it relates to Smithline. The whole situation is bizarre considering the whole scenario with J.L. Weiner requesting to withdraw as her attorney. So what did you guys think about that situation when that happened? Well, um, I started hearing about it before it came up, probably like a lot of people, because as I said the other day on Eric's stream, I'm one of the few people probably, maybe Andrea too, who's never gotten a DM from from uh, Ashley Smith line. So uh, uh, everything I get is third hand and I'd like to keep it that way. I'm not asking for that, but I had heard, you know, that they were uh, dissatisfied. In fact, that, that she had fired him, but the court record had nothing in it. So I'm like, no, that's still who her lawyer is. Uh, then I saw a little bit of the oven firing video and that's bizarre. And, and I can understand uh, the attorney's desire to get on the phone with her because she has previously said, like, I've been hacked. People impersonate me very well. How do you even know she's the one doing the firing? But mm -hmm. once you conclude that, you know, you need to you need to alert the court and withdraw, which is eventually, of course, uh, what happened. But I, I can't I haven't been in that many withdrawal things personally where I've wanted to fire the client or whatever. In fact, just one. But um, you you ideally don't want that person communicating with the other counsel talking about how you're worse than a fruit bat. So this thing just really went uh, pretty wild pretty quickly. And, and then all the DM nonsense to pro-Manson people and to anti-Manson people, it was just, uh, it was a lot to try and figure out what what's really the truth here. 
The thing that really caught my attention from it was just it really highlights what uh, can be a real pitfall in trying to represent multiple clients involving a single cause of action because it really is a minefield in terms of creating potential conflicts of interest. It works just fine as long as your clients are on this both on the same page, they have the same strategy, their interests are in alignment. But as soon as that changes, that can create some pretty big problems for the attorney to be able to stay on in the case. So I have been watching and will continue to watch for the possibility that uh, that could continue to cause problems for Mr. Elwinger to uh, continue representing uh, Esme Bianco, um, even though Ashley Smithline is, you know, no longer his client and isn't pursuing a case anymore. Uh, these types of conflicts can potentially implicate your ability to represent both of those clients. So we don't know, of course, the details of what happened during the uh, motion to withdraw hearing. It was uh, conducted in chambers. So all of those conversations were had privately with the judge. But uh, it is possible that if they're able to get Ashley Smithline uh, deposed, uh, get more information from her about, you know, what exactly did go south with this uh, representation, uh, that, that that could could potentially cause some problems in the future. You know, he's representing both Bianco, and, or he was representing Smithline, he is representing Bianco, and Smithline was going to be deposed in Bianco's case, and that, uh, that whole subpoena situation and her not showing up, that blew up, so He's got a blown up client over here that's supposed to be a witness in in this other case where he's representing the person. So that that is a an epic disaster and it, it, it may not be over. I agree. Yeah. And what's interesting about Ashley Morgan Smithline is she was a big named accuser. She's been promoted in People magazine, making very serious allegations. She was highly promoted in the Phoenix Rising documentary. So this is a big person, even though she's not really, say, a famous celebrity like Evan Rachel Wood or Esme Bianco, but she really made her accusations known and promoted them. So how do you think this might affect, say, Esme Bianco's case, considering she was a third party deposition and now they can't locate her according to these recent filings? Yeah, well, uh, like Steve pointed out, uh, it's it's a potentially messy here because uh, she has been identified as a witness, uh, but now we we don't necessarily know where she is and and that's you know applicable to both sides kind of being able to locate her uh her sort of vanishing into the ether in the midst of all of this is not particularly helpful from a circumstantial standpoint for Esme Bianco's case uh you know might tend to put a little bit of weight on the the side of the scale of you know Marilyn Manson arguing that this was just a conspiracy that was for these um alternative PR types of purposes as profile raising stuff that making these Me Too accusations uh, basically got them. So it, it doesn't help them really from a factual standpoint for, for her to vanish. Um, that's sort of an open question how that could potentially play out down the road in a trial type of setting. That's such a long ways away that I don't really want to anticipate that at this point. Uh, but it is it does create a big question about whether they're going to be able to locate her to, to take her deposition. Um, and, and that's that's something that I would think both of them want to have at this point, although frankly, 
by now, Marilyn Manson probably wants it more than Esme Bianco does. Well, and here, you know, just to point out, Andrea, in a weirdo situation, if she shows up for a deposition, is she going to have a lawyer or not? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably she's not going to show up. Okay. If she were going to do that, she would have done it. But uh, so what happens then? Elvinger is going to sit there and ask his former client questions about the, the actual fact pattern that he represented her on and it, it exploded. It, it's a mm-hmm. it's a bad situation. And maybe he's hoping she stays in Thailand or wherever she may be at this point uh, and stays low. I don't know. Yeah, no, 100 percent. I, I think that's a great point uh, because people have asked this. She, her case was dismissed without prejudice. Mm-hmm. And the use of those words prejudice uh, in a common sense maybe makes people think something other than what it is. But the court is saying that potentially she could refile it. So is that likely to happen? And I don't think so. Uh, who's going to do it? Is she going to do it? She's not going to do it herself. She's not going to pay a lawyer to do it, I wouldn't think. And if I were a, a contingency fee lawyer, I would look at her relationship with her prior attorney and it blowing up while Bianco's didn't blow up and think, do I want to uh, do I want to hold that grenade and see if it if it kills me or the enemy, I, I don't know. I, I would doubt we would see her case again, in my opinion. Yeah, another problem, too, with uh, if she were to go shop this to other contingency attorneys is that the first attorney with a contingency case uh, is particularly bad to uh, to go through a, a series of different lawyers because each one of them, since they're working on contingency, they're not getting paid until the case is over and there's something to collect on. That means they will typically end up with a lien on the settlement for you know some proportion of it that's relative to what they contributed to it. So a new lawyer who's getting on board this case already knows, okay, if we have a, say, 30% contingency fee, we're going to have to discount that by whatever the original attorney is going to be able to claim for the work that he did. So you're, you're getting paid less, you know, for, for doing what is essentially the same job. And that makes it very not enticing. Okay, so in recent weeks, Esme Bianco filed the new third amended complaint. This relates to the one cause of action that was dropped in December. Steve, did you want to cover a little bit about that since I know you covered it on your YouTube channel? Sure. So the court had granted, well, Manson asked for a few things. And one thing he asked was that the court not take jurisdiction over these Deftones claims saying that they were not connected enough with the other claims for the court to to have jurisdiction for that because they're state court claims. Just let the state court deal with it if she wants to sue. But the court said, which I think was the right call, no, nah, it's all kind of all the same stuff. But the court did agree that Bianco had failed to allege uh, enough factual predicate for a, an element of one of her causes of action. And one of those was, hey, they, he caused a breach of my contract with Deftones. The other is he interfered with my future economic activity with Deftones. And they said, well, you have to have shown or you needed to plead in your complaint a specific unlawful or wrongful act that Manson had done. And you didn't do that. You just said he used his power and influence or whatever. So we're going to throw it out, but we're going to give you 20 days if you think you have those facts to um, replead your complaint. And that's what she did. She came up with her third complaint and, and made some subtle changes to it. And here are some of those changes. I posted this on Instagram so people could see it in her second amended complaint from last May. It looks like she just said proceeded to contact the band, Marilyn Manson, that is to confront them over the Deftones decision to work with Miss Bianco. And what's changed, it looks like, is they're a little bit more specific to call the band's lead singer and confront him. And that's very interesting. And then let's see. I'll just actually go with the second one. 
Defendant Warner committed an independently wrongful act when he threatened the Deftones with actions that would disrupt the band's world tour and which would have caused the Deftones financial harm. Andrea, does that make sense to sue Marilyn Manson for this with this lawsuit? Well, not under this cause of action, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think this is getting anywhere near the hurdle that they're they're going to have to clear to keep this uh, keep this claim alive. Um, I see this claim as largely being duplicative of uh, the similar cause of action for tortious interference with contract. I mean, this is all just dealing with, uh, you know, this deal that she she allegedly had with the Deftones. And so if the other cause of action uh, is allowed to go forward, which so far it has been, the, the court did say that, yes, there's, there's sufficient facts pleaded to support that cause of action, then I don't know that she's really necessarily losing a whole lot if she can't also argue the same thing under these independent grounds. Uh, mm -hmm. But the law for this particular cause of action, the tortious interference with prospective economic advantage, is very clear that the type of wrongful act that you have to establish uh, needs to be more than just, you know, it looks bad, like it needs to violate the law <laughs> in some way. And this just you know, sort of ambiguous. What does this even mean? You know, threaten the, the Deftones with actions that would disrupt the band's world tour. I, I mean, there's nothing in there that, that necessarily makes that illegal. Um, this to my, to my eye, uh, is not, is not coming close to meeting that standard. Steve, do you agree with that? Yeah. The court noted in its order that Bianco's attorneys had said, look, we don't really know what he said. We'll figure it out in discovery. So if suddenly they had figured out what he said, well, maybe a witness would tell them that. But I guess I give the attorney a little bit of credit because he, I don't think he did much in this amended complaint. He did file it, but it's not like he created a fantasy. He just basically said he called them on the phone and threatened to disrupt them. So calling somebody is not an unlawful act. Uh, and, and disrupting to me is not inherently unlawful or violating a standard because there are lots of ways to dis people disrupt things all the time that they don't like and it's not all a cause of action so i, I think they needed to, to show that he threatened to kill them or he threatened to you know to do something so, some kind of violation of a statute or whatever and they didn't say any of those things so to me they didn't move uh, the ball forward like they needed to but you know who knows how long it takes to get another motion to dismiss queued up and decided especially with this motion to stay uh, on the docket. Oh, really? So it needs to be something a little bit more severe than, say, making a phone call, you know, making it a threat like be, that. Yeah, it has, it to, has be to be like something Andrew's illegal. Said. It mm -hmm. has to be something illegal. And the problem is, is that threats fall under the First Amendment, like all speech mm. does. And so they also have a very specific technical legal definition. And like Steve has indicated, it's a threat of death or serious bodily harm that is uh, places another person in reasonable fear that the threat is going to be carried out. Um, so they would have to show something like that if they want to say, well, he, he committed an illegal threat and that's the independent wrongful act. Uh, but they don't allege that. So it's it's not going to satisfy that standard. Because he could disrupt them by saying, I'm going to show up at venues and say, these guys are lame. 
They've lost their mojo. Don't listen to them. I'll give a free concert at the same night at the same city. And those things aren't. You know, so, so yeah, I don't think that they showed the facts that the court asked them to do. That's very interesting because I didn't know any of this stuff, let alone, and I don't even know how to pronounce the word torturous. Is that what it is? Interference? <laughs> Tortious. <laughs> Tortious. Okay. Yeah, because they kept, um, or the judge kept the one cause of action, but then dismissed the second part of that in leave to amend. So I'm assuming this is why we're seeing that third amended complaint. Uh, are we going to see a motion for that or it's just, it's just amended and we're going to kind of see something move forward from here. Well, depending on how the stay, <laughs> how that plays out now, since we're going to talk about that um, since uh, it looks like Howard King, Marilyn Manson's attorney wants to have a stay in the case based on a provision in the human trafficking statute or the act, I should say, uh, and I found that very interesting. And I get a lot of questions like, why didn't they do this sooner? Well, when I looked it up, uh, some of the case law on it, there were times when defendants tried to to invoke the stay provision and the court said, no, you, you're not you're not showing us enough evidence that you're actually under investigation. So we're not going to let you invoke this stay. So if you come to the court too early and without enough evidence that you're actually under investigation or this potential criminal prosecution, then you can't get the stay. So if you're Manson side, you say, look, we did the right thing here. We waited until we felt really confident about it. There's not a an estoppel situation here because in fact the case law says don't come too early. Don't don't come until you really have a good handle on this. So I, I think while I understand Elwanger saying, hey man, we've been in this case for a long time. This sucks to have this case stayed. I I like cases to go forward, so that resonates, but that's not what the statute says, in my opinion. The statute says that it should be stayed if it's under investigation or under prosecution or potential prosecution, the way I read it. Yeah, I, I think that that makes perfect sense. Uh, I wouldn't rule out that there may be strategic reasons for the timing, uh, just given how discovery often tends to unfold in civil mm. cases. Uh, you tend to get your written discovery and your document discovery before you go forward with your, your depositions. And so it's possible that they've reached a point where they've received a lot of information through the, the document uh, and interrogatory type of discovery, uh, but maybe it would be good to wait before Marilyn Manson sits down for his deposition, you know? So mm -hmm. this this could be an advantage to them in, in that particular respect. But of course, without being able to see behind the scenes, we really don't know that. It's just a possibility I, I would not rule out. Right, because that was the first trial coming up, I believe in June, if, well, this didn't happen. And it looks like in the court filings that they still don't have Bianco's deposition or what looks like a 35, is that a medical is my understanding. I think it's called a 35. And it seems like kind of a shitty spot to stop at. But also, it's hard to know what's going on behind the scenes, especially as it relates to Marilyn Manson's lawsuit against Evan Rachel Wood and Ashley Ilmagore. Because in the recent anti-slap filings, we did see Bianco's name come up in some of the unredacted portions. So somehow Bianco is linked, but there's not enough information to know how or why or how much more they have for this conspiracy, except for the fact that apparently the broken iPad has been imaged. Because certainly I've seen plenty of, of Twitter comments about it, which is, uh, hey, if Manson's worried about his career is, is stopped while this is going on and he's got all this stuff to clear his name, why would he want this case to be stayed? And, you know, those are fair points from a narrative standpoint. So I guess, you know, when the anti-slap motions were filed, and that's what we'll talk about in a moment, 
Wood and Gore were trying to resist discovery. They didn't want to give depositions. Well, if they're accusers, why don't they tell their story? Well, you know, their lawyers don't want them sitting down for, and in fact, I don't think Gore came off as good in her deposition as I thought she might for, for purposes of state of mind, because I thought her attorney's brief was great. But having said that, the point is Manson's under attorney advice for, for this day. He's not like he's sitting around thinking this stuff up. That's what the, they're getting paid to do. So I think it's fair to say for both sides, the timing of when they talk in depositions and how they maneuver the litigation is is up to the lawyer. And it's not really, I think, fair to destroy either side's narrative based mm -hmm. on what the, the maneuvers the lawyers make. Well, and part of the reason I, I imagine that this stay provision exists in the first place, there's probably a lot of reasons, uh, but one of them may be because of the fact that when you have these overlapping civil and potential criminal issues, you are going to run into the likelihood that your, you know, civil defendant is going to plead the fifth, that they are in a situation where they cannot afford to be full and fair and open in their deposition because they might get criminally charged as a result of what they say. So it's almost certain that from my standpoint, if Marilyn Manson were to sit down for his deposition without knowing if this investigation is concluded or not, uh, he's putting himself at pretty pretty serious jeopardy to, to answer these types of questions. So from that standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to me why Marilyn Manson wants to be sure that that is closed. Not that it can't be reopened, but it just makes it a lot harder uh, to give them new information that would justify reopening the case, as opposed to if they're already, you know, inclined to go down the road of prosecution, and then they can just pick things out from your deposition, you know, that that may tend to support uh, what what they're trying to establish. It just puts him in a very difficult situation to be able to do that. So, real quick, I wanted to talk about the upcoming anti-slap court dates, and it looks like there's a joint filing coming up on two motions pertaining to the 190, uh, what's the word? Um, I'm thinking of, oh, the 190 objections that between Evan Rachel Wood's legal team and Ilma Gore's legal team are trying to make. And it looks like that's coming up on, or at least before January 19th. And the court date for the anti-slaps looks like it's now February 7th. The anti-slaps, the motion to seal motion, and remaining objections. Have you guys had a chance to check out any of the exhibits that were filed back in November? Yeah, although I did did not read 190 some or whatever <laughs> evidence objections. I'll admit, I, but I know they exist, or I believe I trust that on faith. You know, when I when I read the objections and all that, I didn't understand that those were 190. I just thought that's how it actually looks <laughs> when you when you you know look at these filings. I didn't realize it was like 190 of them. Is that normal? <laughs> uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, yes, in the sense that if there is something objectionable, you need to object to it. If you don't object to it, you waive your objection. And so that can be, you know, a, a bit of an own goal if you miss something that you should have caught. At the same time, most people do tend to you know, exercise some judgment over what is the strongest thing here and let go maybe things that don't matter as much. Uh, to raise 190 is being pretty thorough, <laughs> which <laughs> may, be, uh, may be a little bit more unusual to uh, have such a 
a broad net of objections. So basically take that as a clue as they really don't want to be part of this lawsuit with 190 or so objections. Well, they don't want they don't want his evidence to to be considered. They want to limit as much as possible how much the judge will pay attention to what he has submitted in response to their anti-slap motion. So oh, the yeah. more that they can that they can pare that down, you know, the better chance they have of of getting the motion granted. Yeah, especially when you look at just Ilma Gore's deposition. And correct me if I'm wrong, it was limited to groupie, but was that because of an emotional the infliction? I'm sorry if I'm. It, it was it was for her state of mind. I think for uh, when she made the yeah. statements about the uh, the groupie video. Well, it's it's because of the posture of this, since it's it was a request for her deposition in light of the fact that the anti-slap motion had been filed and so the discovery stay was in place. And so it wasn't just a normal course of events, oh, we're gonna go ask for somebody's deposition and do whatever. Because they had to go to court and ask for permission for it anyway and to establish for the court this is why it's relevant to the anti-slap. This isn't a deposition that's just broadly dealing with the issues of the case. It's very targeted to the issues of the anti-slap. And so that's why it focused just on that issue with the, the mental state uh, concerning the groupie, because they need to know that if they, they're going to have you know a meaningful argument about this defamation claim and whether it's it's barred or not. And I just wanted to pull up like just some of these exhibits to look at because I thought they were really interesting. So these some of these are apparently are from a broken iPad. So it looks like Ilma Gore's deposition was on October 15th and restricted to questions about groupie. And some of these are dated. So it looks like the broken iPad, like this one is dated, it looks like it's maybe a screenshot and there's something redacted because of nudity. Was there anything in here, Steve, that you thought was pretty damning or you had more questions on? Well, in terms of her state of mind argument and Manson's argument about it, I figured really from the beginning, the judge is gonna let this move forward, right? Just on the face of it, the, the allegation of the type of allegation she made about him and and the, the allegations he had already said, you know, that we're gonna destroy him and the allegations about the conspiracy and stuff, that, that that was enough there to show some malice. But anyway, her, I thought her attorneys briefed that up and educated me on the law on it as to why the judge might have some concerns about that in terms of it being a subjective test. And, and, and then it devolves down into this, should she have investigated more? What was the basis for what she thought? Why was she doing it? Did, did she basically harbor real doubts about the truth of what she was saying? And I thought her attorneys did a good job on the brief. I found her, uh, the deposition excerpts, in my opinion, were a little more mixed on that. Like I thought her story would be more coherent on how she found out about it and why she believed the particular things that she said about it, because that to me remained a little ambiguous in that. The, mm -hmm. the main thing I was surprised at in the excerpts was how many people, as I read it, she claimed told her they had seen this horrifying video. Mm -hmm. I thought no one had seen it other than Manson and like his, the producer or whatever said, never show this to anybody. But what I read in the deposition seemed to indicate that Wood had seen it and other people had seen it. So that was surprising to me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't think that that Ilma Gore necessarily helped herself out a lot in this deposition. I had some questions anyway about how helpful it was really going to be likely to end up being. Uh, like, like Steve points out, uh, the actual malice, it, it is going to be a subjective standard. It's 
proving she actually legitimately entertained doubts of, of what she was saying. And so that's always one of those things that's difficult to prove because, of course, you can't see directly into somebody's mind. It's always circumstantial. Uh, and certainly what she has to say about it is one piece of circumstantial evidence of what's in her mind. Uh, but it's not binding. You know, we don't have to accept that something is true simply because Ilmahor said it. Uh and it's not even necessarily the best evidence. You know, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I'm regularly <laughs> dealing with situations where, you know, what people say doesn't tend to line up with uh, the rest of the evidence that is out there in the world. So I didn't really have high hopes that this was going to be a, a super fruitful undertaking for them. And mm -hmm. given that, uh, I personally think it actually went better than uh, maybe I would have expected it to. Now, what I found interesting is, at least when it comes to the deposition, and I'm going to pull that up real quick, is learning that not only was Marilyn Manson there to listen into onto this deposition, was that there was audio. And it appears at least one of them mentions it's that Michelle Myers, whose phone number was on the fake FBI letter. And now that I, I have a lot more questions on who recorded that, is it on the iPad? Is it something that she recorded? Because apparently she's an attorney. Uh, what kind of questions did you guys have with the deposition? And I'll start with Steve. Uh, it sounded to me like she was recording it, that the Myers really? was recording it. I, I thought that's where they got this, that Manson side got this information from. But I could be wrong. Like you said, it could be could be the iPad. Yeah, I, I agree. It was it was not clear to me exactly what, what that provenance was. But what did you guys think of Ilma Gore's it looks like changing stories about how she learned about Group B. First, it was something to the effect of she found it online, but then somehow she mentioned Evan Rachel Wood later on. Did you catch that, Andrea? Yeah, I did. I noticed that there is not a whole lot of consistency in, in the story here, like like Steve said uh, at the outset. Uh, I, I also would have expected, you know, something a little bit more more coherent and, and consistent. Um, but that that was certainly a problem. The uh, explanation she gave of, you know, supposedly being just randomly contacted out of the blue by somebody who is supposedly, you know, the, the subject of, of this video and, you know, just this rather implausible explanation from my standpoint, uh, because you would have to, I think, have at least some explanation for why you would credit this, why you would authenticate this as legitimate. You know, how do you know this person is who they say they are and, and so forth? Most of us wouldn't just go around throwing out random child abuse accusations against somebody because some unknown person <laughs> said something to us over, you know, a DM on an anonymous account. So even what she did provide uh, when, when it was consistent, uh, is clearly intended to be exculpatory. She is trying to offer these explanations for what happened. But the problem is that she has also now opened up the door for discovery into all of that. Okay, mm. you say you got a DM, Ilma. Well, now it's put up or shut up time. We want to see it, prove it. What surprised me out of it was the, uh, the lack of direct narrative from point A to point B, when you know your client's only going to be deposed on one thing, I, I just thought that would be more straightforward. But the main thing to me was, uh, unless I missed or read it wrong, was that so many people had seen it. 
uh, when allegedly it was only, you know, a couple of people or whatever. And so if so many people have seen it, I would have thought in her deposition, she would have said, I was told by X person that this underage thing occurred or whatever, in, in addition mm -hmm. to the anonymous call. And, and I didn't see that in there. I, I wondered if sometimes were there people trying to get her more riled up about this? Because she didn't see the video, right? Emma Gore didn't mm -hmm. see the video. So who's this call if there was a call? And like, what what kind of energy was there to get her worked up about this? Or is she self-worked up? I don't know the answer to that because some of her past allegations, I, you know, of, of things that she's experienced, I don't, I don't buy. So I'm not ready to swallow everything she says. Yeah. And with Groupie or even with the other lawsuits, I'll, I'll say Jane Doe claims Groupie was only seen by three people. And what's interesting is if you look into this saying Google, the whole spiel is Manson's ever showed three people was already a thing, you know, 20 years ago was something he said. And on top of it, you have in Esme Bianco's lawsuit, I believe Ashley Walters, uh, both talk about a film that was basically traumatizing to them. And it seems or appears like it could be groupie. Smithline says something about a film, but she literally says CP, that she was forced to watch CP, which was a little nutty. Now, as it pertains to the FBI letter, since the FBI letter is a hot topic and that's being challenged and could possibly go away, I know we've talked before and I've talked to both of you and you both at least a couple months ago had different opinions on the FBI letter. So I, I felt maybe we should bring that up real quick before uh, we end this. What are your positions right now as it relates to the FBI letter? If it's tossed out, is it also discoverable? And I'll start with Steve, if that's all right. I think if it gets struck and once the, you know, it, I don't know if the case is going to get stayed after that or not, depending on appeals, but let's say magically in the future, something's happening. Um, discoverable. I mean, they've already discovered it. it. Now, can they ask more questions about it? Uh, in my opinion, they should be able to do that. I think I'm trying to remember how we framed this before, because the idea is, is it gone from the lawsuit in any material way? In my opinion, would have been if, if it gets struck, it would be because if I were the judge, I'd be like, look, we already had this as a slap thing. So it's out of this case and I'm not going to let you backdoor it back in here uh, for some other purpose. If you had another purpose, you should have put that in the lawsuit to begin with. I'm not going to let you backdoor this in. Having said that, that's just an opinion because Andrea had cited her understanding of the, or the discovery rules, which I completely agree with. And to me, obviously, the reason Manson wants this thing in there is it is material to credibility. It's way material. It's it's really big. And that, that's why they want it struck so much. So the judge could, of course, let it in for all different other kinds of purposes other than the basis for that cause of action for which it might be struck. So I. I wouldn't bet money on it I, I, on my own position. It's just the opinion that I came when I was thinking no, of I, thinking I, this judge like this. And I think Steve had actually made a, a very good point that I really hadn't considered, frankly, which is that given the purpose of the anti-slap statute is to protect people from oppressive litigation, including the discovery process, that it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to say, okay, you can't file a claim based on, you know, this, um, this, fraudulent FBI letter, but we're still going to let you go ahead and do all of the all of the discovery and the things that are, you know, potentially harassing with it anyway, uh, doesn't doesn't necessarily add up. And I, I do think that that is a that is a very good point. Were this less central to not just her credibility in general, but her credibility when it comes to these specific allegations and the circumstances in which they were brought forward, potentially shared with other people? 
uh, and, and just kind of the picture of the overall motive for what was going on here, then I think that that, that would very much, you know, I would be concerned about that if, if I were Marilyn Manson. But because I see it as being pretty central to what's going on uh, in this case in terms of sorting out who do we believe or who do we don't, uh, then my guess is that the general presumption that discovery is broad. It's much broader than just what you get to use at trial. You, you get to investigate your case and, and look for evidence. Um, I think that presumption is probably going to apply here. They'll still be able to review it. Uh, whether or not it gets admitted at trial, of course, we'll, we'll find out way down the road. If Evan Rachel Wood's anti-slaps are successful, is she still being sued or is she removed entirely from the lawsuit? Yes, yeah, she is still being sued. She's still being sued for uh, at least one basis for intentional infliction of emotional distress. She's still being sued for the um, cyber harassment, you know, whatever whatever that claim was, the computer crimes uh, allegation. So, yeah, she is still being sued. She is still a defendant. Do you agree with that, Steve? Yes. Now, if I'm her team and a judge says, I don't buy the conspiracy for the groupie comments, uh, and, and this case doesn't stay or whatever, I might be trying to tee, tee up some motions to dismiss on his, uh, if to the degree I'm in on a conspiracy basis because I got a judge who doesn't believe in conspiracies because I thought Manson did allege that, that I would have ruled the other way uh, than she did in her discovery ruling. But absolutely, even if they win this this uh, slap motion, she's still in on the, these other things. They're not even subject to to question at this point, I don't think. And I do want to thank both of you for joining me today. And Steve, where can people find you at on social media and YouTube? I'm glad you said on social media, not real life. Uh, <laughs> on on YouTube, it's Southern Law. And on Twitter, don't find me. <laughs> <laughs> you got to block more people? <laughs> yeah, I do that a lot. <laughs> and Andrea, how can anyone find you? Well, it's great life advice to stay off Twitter in general, but if you if you can't resist, you'll find me at Abercart Law on uh, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. 